Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me okay? Good morning. Um, Hello, and welcome to Hiawatha Church. If you have never been here before, I just want to welcome you again. Uh, My name is Caleb, and I am one of the pastors and elders here at Hiawatha. Um, This is my first time preaching, so uh, I am a lay elder, so I am not uh, here all the time. I'm not paid to be here, but uh, at least once a year we get to stand up here and preach. So, um, quick little recap on where we're at here. So, we are going to be preaching through 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 10. Um, So, we'll be getting to that in a little bit, but I want to just take a quick moment to introduce myself. So, um, again, my name is Caleb. That is my wife, Ellen, up there, and our two boys, Luke and Truman. Uh, We have been going to Hiawatha for about seven years. Um, We actually went before we were even married or engaged. So we started here dating. We got engaged. We got married. We had kids. And we actually have baby number three on the way now coming in October. So uh, we're going to have three under three, a little crazy, uh, but lots of energy and fun in our house. Uh, So uh, my wife, Ellen, she is a nurse, uh, stays home with our kids. Luke is two and a half, tons of energy. uh, And Truman is almost one. And a fun fact about our boys is they were both born with six toes on both of their feet. So um, that's a fun thing that you might not know. Uh, And then me, uh, my day job is I work for a software company, so I help run our support and onboarding teams. So I do a lot of Zoom meetings in my days, lots of emails, lots of Slack messages. So that's who I am. Um, But in preparing for today, uh, I was nervous. Um, Nervous, actually not maybe for the reasons you might think. Uh, I'm one of the weird people who kind of likes public speaking. Um, I think it's because it's a one-way conversation, so I can just get up here and you just have to listen to me. So, um, but I, I, I kind of enjoy this, but I was nervous because it's weighty. It's, it's weighty to come up and proclaim the Word of God, to proclaim truth over people, um, and hopefully not falsehood. So, um, just as I was preparing for this, just trying to remind myself, and I want to remind all of you, this is not about Caleb today. Uh, and me entertaining you. This is about God uh, and what he has for us um, in his word um, and encouraging us this morning. So with that in mind, let's pray. God, thank you that you are present in this room with us today, that you are the living God who we can know and trust. God, would your word speak truth and life to Hiawatha Church this morning? Would we leave this morning feeling encouraged and refreshed in the gospel? Protect my words, and would truth be heard and hope received. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so again, we are looking at 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 10. So let's read that together. You can, there's Bibles in front of you in the pews, or you can pull out your phone app, or it's up here on the screen. So um, this is Paul, again, writing to Timothy. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So, quick recap of where we are at in 1 Timothy up to this point. Paul has covered a lot of ground in his writings to Timothy so far. He's covered, he's given warnings about false teachers. He has told us how Jesus came to save sinners, who Paul says he was the foremost. Uh, He talked about his desire for how we would behave in the church and the roles of men and women within that. Um, And he walked through the qualifications for overseers and deacons. 
He explores the mystery of godliness. And then last week we talked uh, about how people are departing from the faith and the false uh, theologies that come in there and the freedom that we have in the gospel. So um, with those things in mind, we're going to cover three points today. So number one is uh, good doctrine matters. Uh, What does that mean? What does it mean and how do we train ourselves for godliness? And then where do we find our hope in this life and the life to come? So I gave that away a little bit in the title, but uh, it's really encouraging. So point number one here, uh, good doctrine matters. Let's read this again. If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Um, The easy point here is good theology, good doctrine is important. Uh, But Paul is kind of connecting everything that he has said previously in the letter. He's definitely connecting the previous passage that that, uh, Jesse preached on last week, but also kind of this whole letter, he gives reminders like, put these things before the brothers. Um, And again, the brothers being other pastors and overseers, uh, because this is a pastoral letter. So 1 Timothy is a letter written by Paul, a pastor, to Timothy, another pastor. Um, And so in saying, putting these things before the brothers, he's talking about everything that I've talked about. Please go and tell this to the other overseers, pastors at your church, because good doctrine matters, and don't follow irreverent silly myths that try to creep in. Um, And so it's really easy for those things to happen. So Paul just says that over and over again, uh, that they would not fall into believing irreverent silly myths, but that they would be trained in the words of faith and the good doctrine that they have followed. So my first question then was, what is good doctrine? So um, I am persuaded that good doctrine is the gospel. Uh, You hear that every week here. Um, And if good doctrine is the gospel, and I want to be really explicit about that, uh, and that is that Jesus was the Son of God, came into the world being fully man and fully God who lived a perfect life, fulfilling the Old Testament law and prophecies about him, ultimately being killed on a cross as a propitiation for the sins of the world and rising again so that we have an advocate at the right hand of God for those who would put their faith and trust in him. That is the good doctrine that we follow. That is the gospel. And if we stray from that, we open ourselves up to so many irreverent, silly myths. We have to be armed with truth. Uh, And that is what Paul was urging Timothy and the other overseers and pastors at the church in Ephesus is cling to good doctrine. Otherwise, irreverent silly myths will come into play. So it was common in Timothy's church and it's common today. So I was trying to think, what are some of those irreverent silly myths that maybe we uh, see in our world today, see all around us anytime you scroll through your phone or pick up a self-help book? So I don't know why. I just thought I will Google inspirational quotes and see what comes up. So the, I have two examples for us from the first Google page of results of inspirational quotes. Uh, so we're going to look at how they twist the gospel and what Jesus actually says to those, okay? Number one, uh, this is a very common one. You are enough. If you believe in yourself, you are enough. Anything is possible. Let your light shine through. Um, I think that feels good initially. Like, I, I want to believe that I have everything that I need within me. Um, and so initially you read that and it's like, yeah, I'm enough, I can muster enough strength to do this. Uh, but I don't know about you guys, but rarely does that feel true in my own heart. You know, when I go throughout my day over and over again, I fall short so frequently. Um, and even Paul, we can look back three chapters where Paul talks about Jesus coming to the world to save sinners. And he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Um, so, in a couple of the verses I wanted us to look at here this morning, um, Jesus, talking in Matthew uh, to his disciples, says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, 
take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So um, when we think about irreverent silly myths of you are enough, Jesus is saying here, if you gain the whole world, if you, there are people who from a worldly perspective are enough, right? In our world, people who have a lot of money or wealth or power or whatever it be, influence. But if you profit the whole world and lose your soul, what what value is that? What, what do you get in return? So Jesus is saying his way in the good doctrine of the gospel is different. It is you must follow Jesus. Uh, and so again, we can look at Paul. If you still think, no, I'm pretty good. I think I'm enough. Uh, Paul in Romans says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So Again, we are sinners who need a Savior. And when I remember the good I have tried to do in my own name, uh, for my own glory, it always, it always ultimately falls short. Even if it feels good in a moment, it falls short. And I'm so quickly left feeling empty and defeated because I am not enough. But when the world says you are enough, Jesus says, I am enough. I was already enough. So the point here is, in order to be enough, you need Jesus. And he has already done all the hard lifting. There's so much freedom in that. Okay, another example. Again, these are just first page of Google. It was not hard to find these. Uh, you are the artist of your own life. Don't hand the paintbrush to anyone else. Or another one, accept no one's definition of your life. Define yourself. Uh, as someone who is fiercely independent and really likes to be unique, these feel pretty good to me. You know, it's like, yeah, I can, I can make who I want myself out to who I want to be. Like, I, I want to be amazing and unique and, uh, you know, special cupcake. But... Uh, and to an extent, that's true, right? We get to make a lot of choices in life about who we are and where we live and who we interact with and what we eat and drink and where we work. We have freedom to make those choices. But if we get to say, I'm the one who defines myself, no one else gets to define myself, God says something quite a bit different. Uh, so I want to look at these first two in Isaiah first uh, and make a comment here. So in Isaiah chapter 29, um, God says, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, the thing that made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed, say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Or again in Isaiah 64, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. If we realize that God is our creator and the one who made us, there's a lot of freedom in that because it means he's already given us purpose and a plan for our life. And he is the one who made us. So to turn around and say, God, I'm going to define myself. I know you made me this way, but I'm, I'm going to be this. That's to spit in his face of, of who, you created, who he created you to be. Or one of my favorite, like, in-your-face perspective verses and like, what is your life is James 4.14, uh, where he says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. If we are a mist that vanishes like that in the scope of life, then that means... In, in the scope of all human history, we're probably pretty insignificant. But that is also great news because it means that God has created you for a purpose, that he is the one who gives your life definition, that he is the one who's already painted in all the edges of your life of who you are. So we don't need to fret about who we need to make ourselves into. Um, God has already done that work. There is so much hope and freedom in Jesus, you guys. 
Hand, so my advice to you, hand the paintbrush to Jesus if you feel the need to paint in your own life. Quick few words here just to kind of recap um, this point on why good doctrine, good theology matters. Sometimes I think it's easy to get intimidated by words like doctrine and theology. Um, you know, eschatology or all those other ology words, you know, I, that Chris knows much better than I do. Um, but it's easy to get overwhelmed by those. But there's a really simple truth here. Um, and that is the one doctrine that you need to master and know and preach to yourself every day. And you hear it every week at Hiawatha if this is your home. And that is letting the gospel define and infuse your life, believing the gospel, defining that rightly, and then letting that infuse how you do everything um, in your world and everything you encounter each day. That is what having good doctrine looks like. Um, So my word to you is cling to good doctrine. Don't get distracted with silly myths like you are enough or be the artist of your own life. Jesus is already enough and has already defined who you are in him. So believe that. Okay, moving on. Uh, how do we train ourselves for godliness? Point number two here. What, what does that look like? So Paul uses this theme of training and toiling and striving uh, pretty frequently here throughout these five verses. So um, right, we're going to look at kind of these middle two verses with a quick kind of recap back to where we just were. So again, have nothing to do with the reverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. So, quick note here. I love when Paul says things like, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Like He's like, take a highlighter, pay attention to this. This is important. So, uh, my brain, the way my brain works, I first thought, is Paul saying I don't have to exercise? <laughs> um, no, no, that's not what he's saying. <laughs> but he is drawing a parallel here between if you perfectly exercise your body, that's still not enough. We need something that gives more hope. But he's, he's drawing that, that parallel there. So um, <clears throat> my next question then was, what is, what is godliness? Because if I'm going to train for godliness, I need to know what that looks like. So it wouldn't be a great talk if, you know, I didn't have a dictionary definition in here. So I looked up godliness in the dictionary, and it says, the quality or state of being spiritually pure or virtuous. So sermon over. Perfect, right? Um, no, wrong. Um, because what, what does this lead to? Does this lead me to moralism? Like, I am just going to follow kind of this code of morals so that I can achieve being spiritually pure and virtuous, or maybe legalism, like someone just give me, give me the laws, I'm going to follow them so that I can feel spiritually pure, or maybe something like asceticism, like Jesse was kind of talking about, like if I forbid myself from doing certain things and kind of like make myself feel good, is that what godliness is? Um, the answer is no. So that's, we're going to cross that out. Uh, the answer is no, that is not a good definition of godliness. But good news is here that Peter actually preached two weeks ago on the mystery of godliness. So I'm actually just going to ask him to come up here and just preach the rest of the sermon and then uh, we'll be good. No. Um, but let's read again what he preached on. <clears throat> so this is 1 Timothy three, sixteen. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, that he was manifested in the flesh Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So what is the mystery of godliness according to this passage? It's Jesus. It's Jesus and his life, his death, and his resurrection, and the whole mystery surrounding that. So godliness, then, is just believing the gospel and what Jesus has done. Um, so if that, and, and then emulating that in our lives. So if that is what 
godliness is, how do we train for that? How, how do we train for godliness? Again, Paul is drawing a specific parallel here between bodily training and training in, uh, kind of like your mind or, or spiritually for godliness. So um, I was thinking about uh, a couple weeks ago, about a month ago, I decided I'm going to start working out again. Totally unrelated to me studying this passage. I was just, <laughs> I thought I'd start exercising. So I found this trainer uh, and I was like, look, I have hardly stepped in a gym in my life. I feel really embarrassed when I go in. I don't want to turn into like one of those guys in the fail videos, you know, that should pop up on the internet. So can you just show me how to work out, please? Um, so he kind of walked me through for like an hour and did, we did all these different exercises and he was just kind of pushing me to see what I could do. I was so tired at the end. Like I almost fell down the stairs walking out of the gym and like I could not hardly steer the steering wheel driving home and I was like, I am so out of shape. Um, but it's of some value, right? Like it is a value to train yourself and not to break, but I can bench 65 pounds. So um, that's what I learned. So that's the bar plus two 10-pound weights. So, <laughs> um, But I have not worked out since then. <laughs> uh, and I've lost whatever value I gained from that workout. I, I, I am probably, I don't know if I can still bench 65 pounds, but um, in reflecting on that and like how hard that was and Paul drawing this parallel between training ourselves training our body and training ourselves for godliness, I wanted to know what does the Bible say about how we live our lives? Because that was kind of the question I was asking. That, that train yourself for godliness to me sounds a little bit like, how do you live your life? How do you live out the gospel in your life? Um, so Galatians 2.20, I just thought spoke to this well. So uh, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. I don't know about you guys, but that's really encouraging to me because then what that means is training myself for godliness means that <clears throat> it's not up to me, that it's Christ dwelling in me, that if I believe who Jesus is who he said he is, that that can infuse my life and that he is living in my flesh. So uh, another story here. Chris, Chris said while I was preparing for this, as I was nervous and I was texting him, you know, throughout the last couple of weeks, he just said, just preach to yourself. See how God is speaking to you speaking the gospel to you as you are preaching. Um, I, and I, the last two weeks, I have just felt really out of it. We, we've, you know, our family just had a really busy couple weeks, but I got sick two weeks ago, so I'm surprised I haven't had a coughing attack yet. Um, but uh, we got sick, and I just like mentally, I just felt so out of it, like drained and depressed and emotional highs and lows and all these things. And um, normally, I would have just chalked that up to a couple bad weeks, right? Just being busy, that kind of thing. But I fully believe there's spiritual powers at play and that when someone's going to proclaim the word of God and just when you are a Christian who claims the name of Jesus, like the enemy hates that and wants to attack you. So in studying 1 Timothy 4.8, what really stood out to me is Paul saying that we have to train ourselves for godliness and it holds value in this life and the life to come. For me, it's easy to think, yes, Jesus died on the cross, life to come, like I have eternal life, done, sold, sign me up for that. Um, but how does it affect me between now and whenever the day that I die is? How does that affect my life now? What hope does it hold for us in this life? And I'll tell you what it is because I experienced it the last two weeks. Because uh, you know what got me out of my mental funk when I was feeling so weird and out of it? It was the gospel. It was Jesus. It was preaching myself the gospel every day in those moments when I was weary and tired and, and my heart just felt out of it and my mind was just spinning going a million directions. I was reading God's word and the hope that is in there. It is not always easy to remember the gospel in those hard moments. And I think that's what Paul is saying here is that it is hard 
work to let the gospel infuse your life day after day, moment after moment, but it holds promise for this life. Reminding yourself of the gospel, I experienced that to be true in the last two weeks, can give you so much hope. There is so much hope in Jesus, you guys. He is enough when you are not enough. He gives you hope when you are hopeless. Even just the fact, even just the act of reminding ourselves of the gospel, that is hard work. And that is why I think Paul is using this language of training here, because you have to train your mind to remember the gospel and all the little things you do throughout the day. Because I think it's connected to why does good doctrine matter? Because we need to remember the gospel. Why do we have to train ourselves in that? Because otherwise, we start believing irreverent, silly myths that just come in and creep in and take over your mind. Um, And it is so easy to just let the gospel get washed out. So it is hard work to remember that. So in your life, coworker makes a weird comment and it just throws you off and your mind is spinning or this never happens, but you have a conflict with your spouse or your friend or a child uh, and you're just so angry over something or I have no personal experience with this, but you know, someone cuts you off in traffic and you just lay on the horn and maybe you drive up behind them and lay on it a couple more times. Oddly specific, but um, <laughs> those are the moments when you have to remind yourself of the gospel, that what is more important than my anger or my frustration or this conflict with someone is that this is a person who is loved by God, who Jesus has died for them as well. So we could go on and on with examples, right, of how the gospel speaks into those moments, but you have to remind yourself of the gospel. So train yourself for godliness. Train yourself to see Jesus at work in every little thing you encounter each day. That is what that means. And that is hard work. Um, So I just encourage you in that. Um, there is so much hope and freedom in Jesus and he is the one that gives you the strength that is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. So related to that, point number three here, where is our hope? How, how do we do this? It, it sound, I think sometimes it can feel like a burden you know, when something says like training, like this is hard work, how do we do it? So we've covered what having good doctrine is, which is believing the gospel and why that is important. We saw how training ourselves for godliness, which is putting that good gospel doctrine into action in our lives, is what gives us hope in this life and the life to come. So I want to make kind of one final point on this. Uh, Let's read verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Again, this is really encouraging to me. I hope it is to you too. Uh, And just a couple reminders here. Paul is speaking to Timothy as a fellow pastor. So, um, pastoral letter, Paul speaking to Timothy as a pastor. Um, so, speaking to me in that sense too as, as a pastor. And in my, in my first sermon, speaking to me here. So, maybe for those who haven't led in ministry um, in different capacities, I just want to tell you, it can be really hard work. Uh, there's a reason Paul uses the word toil and strive um, because it can be hard work to lead a body of believers. There's so many rewarding, amazing things, but we're all sinners, right? And so when you get a bunch of sinners together in a room, it means there's a lot of sin there. Um, but there's hope. There's hope in Jesus. Um, and there's also points to this just beyond pastors, just the Christian life. Life in general is hard. There is a toil and strife in what we're in, just living life and getting through it. So um, I was just thinking how to try to illustrate this last point. Um, and I was thinking about um, my grandpa, actually. So he was a pastor for 30 years of his life. Uh, and he's one of those guys who just in my life made a really big impact on, on who I am, you know, just who left a great legacy for, for me. 
Um, and so just as I was preparing for this, you know, getting nostalgic and just kind of thinking like, you know, again, feeling the weightiness of this, I was just thinking of doing this for 30 years and how, how hard that would be. Um, but here's, here's me and Bapa, a slightly embarrassing photo of me. So we called him Bapa. He was, that's what all his grandkids called him. So um, this is us in, in a pool. <laughs> uh, but you can see this on his face. Bapa had an incredible amount of joy in his life. Um, it was just one of his favorite words to use. I think like when he would stub his toe, he'd go, oh, joy bells. Like he just like, <laughs> that was just like, that was just who he was. Uh, and it just characterized him throughout his entire life. Uh, but when I was 13, he was diagnosed with leukemia, and we didn't know how long he had to live. Uh, you know, lots of trips back and forth between the Mayo Clinic. Uh, but what I remember so distinctly about Bapa during this time was his joy and his positivity. Um, and not only that, it was his desire to return to his church and preach the Word of God to the body of believers that was there. He had been at the same church for 20 years. Um, and so I was just reflecting on this and trying to think, like, could I relate this? How could I share this story um, I didn't just want to like fit it in just for the sake of fitting it in. So I called my grandma, uh, who has great memory for these things, uh, and just was reflecting with her on some of this and on Bapa's life and his ministry. And um, again, just connecting it to like, he toiled and strove for so long, but he always had that joy. Um, and she shared a story with me that I wanted to share with all of you. She said, uh, they, they have video recordings of a lot of his sermons from kind of the last years. Uh, and so she said recently she just watched the last sermon he ever preached. It was on Revelation. That was one of his goals was before he died, he wanted to preach the whole book of Revelation. Um, she said at the end of that sermon, he stepped over to the side of the podium and he looked out over his congregation that he'd been with for so long. Um, and I was just trying to think, like, what would that have been like being in his shoes, knowing I'm probably going to die soon. Like, this could be the last time that I get to speak to them, that I get to say a word over them. And that's what he did. He stood there and he said, um, this may be the last time that I speak to you, that I get to share God's word with you. And I want you to remember this. You remember nothing else. Live for Jesus. And they walked over to the other side and he said again, do you hear me? Live for Jesus. And that was, that was the last sermon he ever preached. He, he died five weeks later. Um, and he had so much joy right, right to the end of his life. But that was the legacy. That was what he wanted to remind people of. Not a list of do's and don'ts, not moralism or legalism or asceticism. It was believe the gospel, live for Jesus, and let that infuse your life because that is all that matters. Life can be a toil, you guys. It can be hard. Um, there's cancer. There's sickness. There's conflict. There's so many things. There's brokenness. We see that brokenness. But there's good news. We have a living God. We have Jesus who died on a cross, but it didn't end there. That's why the word living is so encouraging. That's why I put it in the title of the sermon. Our hope is the living God. It is Jesus who died and rose again. So the story did not end there on the cross. It did not end in the tomb. It ended in Jesus raising again so that we could have hope in this life and in the life to come. So do you believe that? Do you believe that you have a living God who is your Savior? If you don't, would love to talk to you about that. And any of the other pastors and elders here would love to talk to you about that. We do not serve a dead, whitewashed God who cannot sympathize with us. But we have a Savior who is able to sympathize with everything we are going through because he lived it. And that's the best news in all of this. When Paul says, why do we toil and strive? It's because Jesus has already toiled and strove for us. Jesus already 
live the hardest life you could live, living perfectly, dying in our place. That's why we have our hope set on the living God. So, Hiawatha Church, value sound doctrine, which is the gospel with nothing added to it. And then, train yourself for godliness, which is the gospel worked out in our lives. And then when it gets hard, when there's toil, when life is just feels like you can't go on and you are tempted to give up, remember that we have our hope set on a living God who is our Savior for those who believe in him. Let's pray.